Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Fitzhoban Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Say It Now week ends tonight. As always, a pleasure to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. A very special week for Tobin Brothers, today being the last day of Say It Now week. And so we thought we'd take the opportunity of uh, bringing a gentleman onto the show that I have known for most of my life, quite frankly. Um, He is one of the great broadcasters that Australia has ever produced and was a mentor to me when I was a young man, still at school, just starting out in the broadcasting ranks. You know his voice very well. His name is Brian Martin. BM, lovely to see you. Pete, it's uh, an absolute privilege to be here today and uh, sitting on the other side of the mic talking to you and um, love to be able to have the time now to uh, reflect back on uh, uh, a lifetime in racing, but uh, so much of that time was spent working with you and um, going through all those trotting meetings and greyhound meetings and socialising together, so we've uh, the journey's been a long one, hasn't it? It has, and we'll talk a lot about that over the hour that is ahead of us. Now, I want to put you in the category of Dame Nellie Melba, John Farnham, <laughs> and Brian Martin. There's the trifecta. You are retired now, aren't you? Yeah, look, it's, uh, it is quits after, uh, after the spring of last year. Um, that was Melbourne Cup number 29, and I just felt as though that was... Uh, that was a good number because I had retired in 2007. I, I actually gave my uh, Carl Zeiss binoculars to Edward Sadler, who was a budding young caller who's calling now. I think he's in Singapore at the moment. Um, he was coming through the ranks and I gave the, the glasses, the field glasses to Edward and I said, you uh, you take these and, um, you know, look after them and I'll get them back from you when, you, you know, when you're, you're, um, you're going to retire and, and get out of the caper. So... Um, and that was good. And then I got a call uh, just or towards the end of 2009 to say that uh, SEN were looking to uh, go back or start a, a sort of a, a coverage of racing through the autumn and the spring. Would I be interested? And I thought, no, I don't think I could do that. I'd been out of it for uh, nearly two years. And um, Barry Quick at uh, SEN at the time said, uh, no, I think, you, I think you could do it. And anyway, I went back calling, uh, did a couple of races in the autumn of 2010. And I think... Um, what I didn't realise is how much I missed it, um, but I was I was tired. I was just burned out back uh, back in two, uh, 2007, and I, I no I did, I just lost the zest for it. There was a lot of travelling. I was with TVN at the time, and I was going back to these meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and travelling to Bendigo's and getting there early and Sundays. And I thought oh, I don't I don't want to do this. This is I'm worn out. So, but I came back with a with a new lease of life, so to speak, and had seven wonderful years with uh, with SEN, but. That is it. The spring of 2017, that's it. Was it sad? Was it hard to give it away or had it run its natural course for you? Uh, Yeah, I think it had run its natural course. Uh, I think it's going to be difficult come the spring of this year, you know, which is not far away. It's looming up. And I I think that's a part that I'll probably have a bit of uh, difficulty adjusting with because I know when I finished in um, on Sandown Guineas Day in 2007, I thought, that's it. That's beautiful. I'm done and dusted. But then the spring came around in 2008 and 2009, and I remember going to the Caulfield Cup in 2008, so I've been retired nearly 12 months, 
And I went there and I was just in the members and blokes are saying, come and have a beer, come and have a beer. And, and, and I felt so out of place at the bar on Caulfield Cup Day. And I, I've got to tell you, looking back up towards the broadcasting box and just seeing the little faces up there, I forget it. Or Greg, Greg of course, was there and um, a couple of junior callers in the, in the spare boxes. And I thought... I don't belong here. I, I sort of belong up there. And jocks would be coming back to scale and they'd give you a wave, good ABM. And I thought, and I went home actually. I stayed for the Caulfield Cup and I couldn't get out of the place quick enough. And I, I just went home. And, and Jill said, Well, what are you doing back here so early? I said, I can't really cope with it. And, and I didn't. And Johnny Tapp, when I retired, John Tapp ran from Sydney and he said, Mate, I'll tell you what's going to happen to you. And everything he said was right. You go through this sort of cold turkey, withdrawal type of thing for something you've done for a lifetime. And I had a lot of trouble, you know, dealing with it sort of mentally. It, it didn't, didn't cause any, any hassle to me or the family or anything like that. But in my own mind, I was out of place. I thought, what do I do now? And my well, the wife likes to read the age from the front to the back three times and the spectrum and the whole lot and have the could have beans on and things like that on, on a Saturday morning. And I was in her space, you know, she, and I, I, I wouldn't know how to start a motor mower. So there was no sense of <laughs> house didn't need painting. So I was sort of ordered, you know, off the ground, get out of, you know, get out of my space. And, and I did want to go back to the races and just be a punter and just be there as one of the crowd. Um, Cause I just didn't think I, I didn't think that, that that's where I belonged. I didn't know really where I belonged. Anyway, that's how it happened. Was it hard to kickstart again, Brian? Because it is a pressure job, as you've understood right throughout your career, and there is a lot of pressure, and it's a difficult job as well. Was it hard after that hiatus to get back into it, or was it like riding a bike for you? A little bit of, uh, yeah, it was more like riding a bike because I, I remember going out to Sandown one quiet Wednesday in, in the lead-up to, to coming back, and I thought, well, just give myself a try here. And um, I was in one of the spare boxes. I sort of made sure no one saw me and I just sort of snuck in there with a little tape machine. And from the moment they jumped in that first race of the sort of just doing a tape again, it just took me back. It took me back to the days at at 3AW back in the mid-60s and, you know, going out with a big giant tape recorder and a suitcase out to the races and calling it on the reel-to-reel tape and loving every moment and thinking one day I might get the chance. And I was 16 at the time, so it's 50-plus years. But um, going back and doing that again, I just had to be perfectly happy in my mind that I could do it. I could still coordinate it from identifying the colours to the brain to the mouth and still get it right. Otherwise, I'd make a deal of myself. So, But for the moment, I just sort of looked at that first race and it was a field of 11. I rolled into it and I rolled into it and loved every bit of it. I thought, yeah, I, I can still do this. It's, and I remember coming home with the tape and I did about five races and I came home and played the little tape to Jill and I said, how does that sound? And she sort of shrugged her shoulders. And she said, same as normal. Mm. <laughs> what's, what's the problem? And um, that sort of inspired me to say, well, back to Barry Quick. Yeah, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. Um, and... Yeah, I went back because it was only the autumn and the spring and then sort of spring went through all the summer into the autumn, but it was only three months or whatever and you really look forward to it because it was Saturday only and, and the public holidays and it was fantastic. I loved every part of that last last time around, but um, uh, that is the last time. That is the last hurrah. You were still calling well at the end and that can be a very difficult thing when you know you can still do something to actually put a stop to it. 
Bill Collins said all the years ago when he called his last Melbourne Cup that he wanted to go out while he was still on top and while people still had that thought about him. Was that something that crossed your mind, that you wanted to go out while you were hardly highly regarded? And and a second part to that question, did what happened to Bert Bryant at the end of his career cross your mind as you were thinking about saying farewell? Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, and through, with Bert, uh, way back in the, the mid-'70s, it was a... Um, it was like a brain hemorrhage that, that hit Bert mm-hmm. suddenly and uh, he still had a good few years left in him. He was, he was such a brilliant caller. Um, but the biggest mistake he made was to try and come back from that when he'd had such a serious illness and it didn't work. And it undid so much wonderful work, wonderful work. So, yeah, I was very conscious of that. Well, that was sort of 40 years ago. I was still conscious that uh, it's a different world with social media. Everything you do now on radio is seen on television anyway in terms of uh, sports broadcast. And I knew with race calling, and, you know, you're affecting people's pockets too. So if you're wrong on a photo finish, you're a mug. It's either the jockey's fault or the caller's fault. It's never the punter's fault. And that's something you've, you've had to live with all your life. So in the world we live in now of, of you know, the high pressure of social media and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and every angle's covered on TV, there's no room for error. You know, you're only, you're only human. I remember Jack Ayling, the great old raconteur at 3UZ back in the early 70s when I started, and I was calling the Olympic Park Greyhounds and I put the wrong dog in the wrong box. It was, you know, the two emergencies, 9 yeah. and 10. So the scratchings were 3 and 7. And I mixed nine should have gone into three, but ten went into three and uh, nine went into seven. I got them the wrong way around on the first leg of the double, so I called the wrong dog all the way in the in the race, and I was about 23. And, and just to clarify what happened in those days, they used to wear the colour of the box. So exactly. So it, it went into the white, and they didn't have their own colours in Exactly those days. right, yeah. exactly right. So I remember, so I messed up the first leg of the double. I was beside myself. I'd been at three is it for 12 months. I was the new recruit, and uh, I remember running into Jack at the Windsor Hotel where the boys would gather on Friday, and I was devastated. I'd made this mistake on Monday night, and my head was on the ground. I remember Jack, Jack Ailing, beautiful guy, and he said to me, he said, Smacker, what's the trouble? And I said, oh, Jack, you won't believe what I did. He said, I heard it. He said, I'd, I'd take a double at the Olympic Park Dogs every, uh, every Monday night. He said, don't worry about it. You apologise after the race, but he said, you can't change it. He said, I'll tell you one thing. He said, the bloke who put the... Uh, the eraser, the rubber on the end of a pencil made a fortune. And, you know, that has stuck with me for my entire life. You know, we're human. And race callers make mistakes and they'll keep making mistakes. It's, it's like, and football commentators do it and we all do it. But it, it affects the putter's pocket. So it, uh, it's deadly when we, when we do it. But it took me a while to get over that. But I was always conscious of staying trying to maintain the standard. But you, at, at mid-60s, you're not as sharp as what you were at mid-40s. It's, you know, the eyes aren't as good. But I was getting by. Um, I was enjoying it. But towards the end, I found I was putting too much pressure on myself. And I thought, this is madness. You know, this, this, is, um, this is going to beat me. Uh, why, why do I need to keep going? 29 cups is a good, you know, is a good number. Um, every state of Australia, nine different countries around the world, my own horse in the, in the Cox Plate five times. What else is there to do? Now, let's, let's make the call. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell my wife. But after the cup, on the 29th cup, I remember I was working with Dr. Turf and KB, and I said, boys, that's the last cup for me. And it caught everyone a little bit by surprise, but I didn't want any fanfare because I'd been given this beautiful extension of seven years, which I never expected, by, by SEN. I'm eternally uh, grateful to Barry Quick and the people that uh, allowed me to do that. 
So I just want to go out very quietly. Thanks. Close the door and see you later and leave it to Matty Hill and, and the young talent that's coming through now. We'll talk a bit about the cup and technically calling the cup and the, and the toll that it takes and the, the control that you have to have to call a Melbourne Cup of both your nerves and your breathing and everything else a little bit later in the program. It was a Melbourne Cup that peaked your career, wasn't it? A Melbourne Cup that started you in race calling. It did. It did. And it goes way back. Uh, we lived in West Ivanhoe, sort of a battling um, suburb. Dad was a textile cutter and mum worked at... Um, she worked at uh, Carline's Hotel in uh, Spencer Street, which is long gone. And I remember Melbourne Cup Day 1956. And I had two elder brothers and mum was pregnant again coming through in, uh, in 1950, but back in 1950 when I was born. And, you know, two, two older brothers, John and Ken, and um, uh, dad was hoping for another boy. Mum thought, you know, a girl would be terrific. Mm-hmm. They're both very happy. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but I remember at six years of age listening to the Melbourne Cup in our lounge room. TV had come in, but we were too poor to have a TV. The walkers down the street didn't used to hang over the fence and look in and watch watch the news. But I remember listening to the Melbourne Cup. Dad had no interest in racing. Uh, Mum liked to go to the Oaks, and she'd make her own outfit and her hat. And uh, with the neighbours in, in Green Street, Ivanhoe, we lived at 113 Green Street, Dad put um, Mum and Dad and the three boys, John, Ken and Brian, all in the suite. Well, sixpence to go in. And if you drew the cup winner, you got two bob, which is a fortune when you're six years of age going to St Bernadette's around the corner. And I drew Evening Peel. So I remember sitting in the, lying on the floor on the carpet in the lounge room. I think we only had three chairs. And um, listening to the cup and hear this crystal clear description coming out of the Bakelite box of, you know, the radio... Stations in the front, the light behind them, 3DB, 3LO, 3UZ, 3AR, right across the dial. And I heard this crystal clear call. I'll never forget it. I don't know who it was. It could have been Bill Collins or Burke Bryant. They were both at the height of their, their, the game at the time. And I remember going around the back where the valves are and the power cord was, trying to find where the little man was that was doing this description of the Melbourne Cup. And Evening Pearl races on to win the Melbourne Cup. And I thought, that is amazing. Well, first of all, I won two bob. But secondly, here was this race call coming out of this little Bakelite box, which was called a radio. That's what I want to do. I want to, want to follow that. Along the way, I think I was going to be a jockey for about a month, and then that gave up that, beaten by Bay Marie. And <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to be a race caller, and I had the kids at Parade College running around the Oval at Elfington, and I changed their names in the early 60s to uh, Tullock and Dooligiri and Sailor's God, and they all fell into it. <laughs> Around the overload I'd go, and, and I'd do the call. So I, I always wanted to, to do and pursue that. And strangely enough, 10 years after 56 and 66, I went on 3UZ radio auditions and called the Memorial Mile, won by uh, Storm Queen from the final day at Flemington. And I got three gongs and $2, uh, and that was my break into radio at 66. Was that when you realised you could do it or was it actually physically standing there on the roof of a race course somewhere and calling into a tape recorder that um, honed your skills and you realised, yeah, I can do this. I might need a bit of fine-tuning, but I can do this. Yeah, but I'd be the act at uh, the family weddings, like um, friends would get married and mum and dad would drag us along to the wedding as you used to. The kids would go along and, yeah, in the uniform you had was your 
parade uniform. You sit there. Brian will now do a phantom call of the Futurity Stakes Caulfield today. Over to you, Brian. Thanks very much. And away you go and do a call. So I was, you know, I was part of the uh, sort of like a one-trick pony at, at weddings and things like that, not funerals. <laughs> that came later. Um, but I would do these these race calls, phantom calls. But the real deal was going to the races sort of later in the – probably 67 – 66, 67, and taking the tape recorder out to the uh, Flemington and Caulfield and Mooney Valley where the spare box was, this big reel-to-reel tape recorder, little Japanese binoculars, uh, you know, 8 by 30s or something, where you could flat out seeing the running rail, but your eyes are pretty good when you're only a teenager, and calling into the tape and bringing the tape back, and I was at 3AW. I'd started 3AW about 66, 67. You were the mail boy, weren't you? I was the mail boy. Most boys are. And um, <laughs> I remember I'd, I'd collect the mail at the uh, GPA, walk up Latrobe Street to um, 380 Latrobe. I'd sort the mail out, the accounts department, the announcers department, the, all the different areas of 3AW. Talkback Radio had just started, and I was the teenage mail boy, and then I graduated to being a panel operator, and I'd get one day off a week, and that'd be Saturday, and I'd go to the races with my tape recorder. And I'd come back, and there's a great guy working there at the time, Arthur Lister, Artie Lucky Lister, and a beautiful man. And he'd been a race caller back through the 30s and 40s, and he'd listen to my tape. And he'd say, oh, that was all right. You're doing that okay. Yeah, no, look, slow down a little bit because you're always in a hurry yeah. when you're a kid. And um, that's where it went from there. It, it sort of a job came up as a turntable operator. Um, trainee race caller at 5D in Adelaide in 1970, and that's where it it got serious, and I took a job on as part-time race caller. It's a remarkable story and uh, an entertaining story, and we'll continue the story on the other side of the break with Brian Martin and find out how it went from 5DN to the greater 3UZ and one of the powerhouses in sports broadcasting in this country. Say It Now Week finishes tonight once again. It's been a wonderful week where we've seen many people share a message with the loved one by using the hashtag Say It Now across social media, and it's fitting that I have Brian Martin in the studio with me to talk about about his career in this week and we'll have more with BM after the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral. This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Say It Now week ends tonight. Lovely to have you with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral. Celebrating lives on this, the last day of Say It Now week. Don't forget to tell a loved one what they mean to you today. Brian Martin is my guest in the studio on This Is Your Sporting Life. Brian, you spoke about the fact that you went to Adelaide as a young man. How did you come to get back to 3UZ, one of the powerhouse radio stations in this country? Yeah, it was the uh, the greater 3UZ, Pete, and I, I recall getting a letter. I was boarding... Um, with a Dutch lady, a lovely lady, Mrs. Colin, uh, down in Morford Road, 118 Morford Road, Morfordville, nearly opposite the Morfordville Racecourse, so I was well-placed. Um, and I had a little car, a baby Austin, which I, I bought for $100 off uh, a girl who worked at Schedules at, back at AW. I drove that car, that baby Austin, from Melbourne to Adelaide. Uh, it was the only car that actually had an inferiority complex because as the bigger cars went past, it what a veer off the road and sort of high. <laughs> I think it took me four days uh, <laughs> to drive to Adelaide because it, it, downhill would get up to 60 miles an hour. It was downhill. Anyway, that was my um, my my purpose of travel. And um, so I, I had wheels. And once you had wheels when you're in Adelaide, it was pretty handy. Ran into a, a great guy who's been a lifelong friend over there, and that was Johnny Letts. Yeah. Uh, back in late 1970. We've been mates ever since. Guest on this program not yeah, that long ago yeah, as well. fabulous guy. And I, I met him at the Morfordville Trials 
and it was a Monday trials, and I was there in the little news van from 5DN to, to observe the trials. There was this tap on the, on the window alongside me, and I looked up, and here's this little bloke in jodhpurs and riding outfit, jockey outfit, uh, like, you know, not racing colours. It wasn't a racing day. It was a trial day. And he said, hey, turn that window. And I turned it down. He said, you getting the scratchings? And I said, yes. He said, good. He opened the door, and he pulled the form guide out. He wanted to get the scratchings for the Cranbourne Trots. Yeah. And we got chatting. We became lifelong friends. And he's uh, he's a wonderful guy, a fantastic ambassador for racing, let's see. And you see what he's achieved with on the pony, winning two Melbourne Cups, Hall of Famer, and um, just just a fabulous mate. And so there in Adelaide for two years, um, I called. I got the chance. Kevin Dagg was the, the number one caller, and I was Kevin's assistant. But I used to do the breakfast panel, be the panel operator for the breakfast announcer, John Cook in the mornings, and then we go off to the races. Many a time, and Kevin came from Melbourne, as I did, and we were foreign to where Balaclava and Gawler and, and Strathalban were. Many a time, and Kevin was driving, not me, we'd go to the wrong race course, you know, and because um, there's no sort of, you know, GPSs and that, and we'd, we'd get to Strathalban, and Kevin would say, not many here, and i say, well, probably not, because they're racing at Gawler. <laughs> <laughs> so there were late charges getting there as they were going to the barrier for the first. But we got by and we had a lot of fun. It was racing and radio and that sort of thing. It was fun. It was fun. And you're growing up in Adelaide, which is a great city. Made a lot of good friends there. But I, for some reason, Kevin Dagg went away and I got to call the Grand National at Victoria Park in 1972. So this was my big break. This was the mainstream, one of the, one of the big races for the, for the year at uh, at Victoria Park, and I called it with, you know, gave it just my best shot. You know, they jumped away over three and a half miles. I think I was way up there that high, but just made it as exciting as I could because I knew that relay was going back into Melbourne that mum and dad would be listening. And, you know, and you made a trunk line call the night before, yeah, I'm going to be calling the National. Yeah, it's a... Anyway, Bert Bryant, uh, the great broadcaster, was holidaying in Townsville, and for some reason the Adelaide races went through the relay and Bert was in the bar on, on holidays with mates and family, and he heard this young caller, me, I was 20, calling the Grand National in Adelaide, and there was going to be a change of callers for the third stringer. There was Bert Bryant, John Russell, and Ray Benson was going to 3DB, and there was a position vacant to call everything at, at UZ. And I got a letter. I'll just stop you there, by the way. Yeah. Ray Benson, give him his correct name. Because Harry Lyme. Harry Lyme, the third man. The third man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Harry Lyme was going across. <laughs> I have you hears this. Going across to 3DB, and um, and this position came up for me, uh, and I got a letter from Lewis Bennett saying they were interested in talking to me. I think I was getting thirty-seven a fortnight, thirty-seven dollars a fortnight at uh, seriously, at um, it was five dollars for board, and then put petrol in the car. I had three girlfriends, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> backless to the wall uh, <laughs> for a range of reasons. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a family show. Um, so I was battling along, but we're having a lot of fun. But this letter came from Mr. Lewis Bennett, who was the doyen of racing uh, radio radio station managers. Um, we'd be interested in talking to you about it. And I went to 3UZ in June of 1972 on $100 a week, like $100 a week, which was a fortune. But I had been called up for national service uh, when I went to Adelaide and in the, the uh, sort of 1970, but I didn't tell them because they didn't ask. And um, I failed my medical because I had spurred heels and um, 
I think when I did the eye test at, uh, at the doctors and on North Terrace, they um, turned the lights out and I couldn't see the chart quite clearly. And he said, uh, that's interesting, you can't read the chart. And you're a race caller. I said, yeah, but you've got the lights off. So. <laughs> anyway, I failed my medical. Um, and, uh, yeah, so got the job at 3UZ in 1972 and joined Bert Bryant and worked with Bert for about 11 years. Um, even when he wasn't calling, he was still doing studio work and Johnny Russell, who became a great mate and um, got the chance to do store gifts and Olympic Park Greyhounds and that's where you came into the fold as, as, a, as a junior behind me to do, share the calling at Olympic Park and Sandown Park. And I remember doing the store gift in 1977, the centenary. Mm. Um, the American won it. Warren uh, Edmondson. Warren Edmondson. I still got the race book, still got the card. Yeah. And uh, and I did about three of those, might have been to the early 80s. You took over from there. You took over from the Greyhounds. Your career just went through the roof. And I went you know, to see the other way to gallops, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, when you reflect back, you've been such a, an integral part of my time in radio and, and calling. And it's, you know, it's, it's away from me, just sharing the, the time with you and the friendship with you has just been fantastic. And here we are 40-something years on yeah. talking about it on radio. Yes, well, we often reminisce about the fact that I um, nurse little Beck and little Tim, your children, yeah. who are not so little anymore. Well, their parents and they've, they've you know, they've, uh, Beck's got three and Tim's got uh, three and uh, it's, it's a beautiful time of your life for us as, as grandparents. And where did a young lady called Jill come into your life? Met Jill at the showgrounds, uh, showgrounds the trots, uh, on a Saturday night. She was there with a girlfriend and... Um, Got chatting with her after the last down in the members bar and um, she'd just come back from overseas. It was probably 1973 or 73, 74. And um, yeah, we started sort of going out. She was a school teacher. She in primary at, uh, she she lived in Nidgeree. In primary, um, in the bubs, she taught uh, Bomber Thompson. Really? Yeah, I've got the class photo. There's uh, Miss Cooper. Yes. Mini skirt, skirt that finished about here. On radio, about yeah. here, hair down to about there, and they're sitting in the front rows. A little blonde little boy, and she said he's a dear little boy. Always had a football in his hand, and always in a bomber's outfit, Bomber Thompson. Mm. Yeah, so Jill came from that side of the tracks, and we were living in Campbell, and I sort of wooed her to come over, over the river, and come over to that side. And we got married in nineteen seventy-five, and she has been um, my best mate. Um, you know, we're married now forty-three years, uh, and. Blessed with beautiful children and beautiful grandchildren and I'm the luckiest bloke in the world, I can tell you. Absolute luckiest bloke on the planet. Just one part back to 3UZ, Brian. Uh, I talked about it being a juggernaut. Now, it was the racing oh, station. yes. But Bert Newton was there. Don Lane was there. Mm. Bob Rogers was there. Yeah. There were some of the biggest names in Australian entertainment were there at the time that you were there. And if you go back to uh, to the, the disc jockeys, because it was a sort of like a rock and roll station and it had this amazing mix of rock and roll you know, uh, Don Lunn, top-rating breakfast show in Melbourne, playing records, playing records. Playing the daddy top... of the radio. Yeah, the Beatles came, and, and, and 3UZ at the time were so much a part of that, that Beatles promotion, the Battle of the Sounds. But you had Don Lunn and Alan Lappin and Don Rainsford, and as you say, Bert Newton came along. There was ugly Dave Gray there yeah. with a great guy, Peter James. But all these, these Doyens broadcasting champions and, and giants uh, through the 60s and 70s. And when you sort of moved down the track to the 80s and 90s, but even at the time you thought this is fantastic to be a part, just to be a little minnow working at this great radio station. But now you reflect back and think, 
it was a colossus of radio, yeah. and it was on top for so long. But it made this. There was the magic of the top forty and the racing that worked, and it just went through the roof. Uh, and they were some of the best days of my life, and, and I thank God that I was allowed to be a part of it. And some of the entertainment that went on in those days was actually entertaining radio. Oh, when, yes. when people listen to racing on radio these days, all they hear is just a string of races, yeah, one after yeah, the other after yeah. the other, and that's the way it's got to be because there's so much racing. But there wasn't so much in those days. So you would, and I remember this well, you would interact with the likes of Bert Newton when he crossed to you for the preview at Kilmore Races. You might spend the first five minutes talking about anything but the races. That's right. Well, the beauty about Bert was he, um, and still is, but he was a great performer. Like, he he, he could perform on stage. He's an absolute legend of television from black and white TV when TV started with, with his own program. You know, that you look back and it stood the test of time, Bert and Graham Kennedy together. And he was a master of radio, had a beautiful voice, an easy-to-listen-to voice, but he was a punter. He loved to bet Bert, so... He couldn't get to you quick enough for the preview at Pakenham to talk about the punt and what's your best and things like that. And we raced horses together. Uh, we probably spent a bit too much time socialising together over the years, but a, but a fabulous guy um, and, and, you know, what what a legend he's been and, and what a, a legacy that he's left in show business in Australia. And, and he's just turned 80, but a fabulous guy and um, just the... Um, the ultimate, the, the, the best entertainer I think I've ever worked with. And very kind with his time to oh, young yes, people coming yes. up through the ranks as well. He, Absolutely. He was brilliant in that regard. Yeah. Uh, um, he was always wonderful to me, both at the radio station and also when he was doing Good Morning Australia at Channel yeah. 10. And yeah. we've got a lot to be thankful for him and mm. uh, and his like, the entertainment uh, doyens, as you said, of mm. the industry that we got to rub shoulders with. And at the time, Pete, you, uh, you knew you were pretty lucky to uh, to be in that environment, to be sharing your time and those people giving their time to you as we came through. But that even grows when you look back, you reflect back 20, 30, even 40 years on, you think, how lucky was I? You know, mm. How lucky that they gave me their time and I'm sure whatever I've achieved is due to what these people gave us and that's eternally grateful for that. We'll take a break, Ryan. When we come back on the other side of the break, I mentioned Melbourne Cups, so I want to talk mm. to you about Melbourne Cups and the difficulty of doing that. Perhaps something even a bit more difficult, calling your own horse in a cox plate, <laughs> not once but five times. Yeah. And also taking that magnificent voice you had around the world and that moment that Better Loosen Up provided in the Japan Cup all those years ago. Plenty to talk about with Brian Martin on the other side of the break. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Say it now week ends tonight. Hope you're enjoying this edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. The great Australian broadcaster Brian Martin is my guest in the studio. Brian, you spoke earlier about 29 Melbourne Cups. Was the 29th any easier than the first one? First one came by chance, 1981. Um, I was working at UZ, through UZ. Uh, I think we're still in... We'd moved from Burke Street to Carlton, I think. Uh, yep. It might have been Berkeley Street, Carlton. And Frank O'Brien, um, race caller, um, ABC caller, course caller for many years, Frank was going to be handling the call of the Melbourne Cup to the non-racing stations, like at the time 3AW, the FM, a couple of FMs were, were there, 3KZ. 
Uh, so Frank was going to do that call just for the non-racing stations around Australia. Now, Frank had a mishap coming out of the Stewards Tower at Breakfast with the Stars on Cox Plate at the Tuesday before the Cox Plate. Had a bad fall and had a compound fracture of his leg. So he was on the bench. They didn't have the caller to do that. And I remember I was at Donald Races. It was the Friday before the, uh, the Melbourne Cup. And I got a call from Nancy Helmore, who was our program uh, coordinator at uh, UZ. She said, got a request. Would you like to call the Cup? I said, well, not to call the Cup. Johnny Russell was our, our chief caller. And I thought, what's happened to John? She said, no, we need someone to do the, the, the non-racing stations. Well, I broke my hips, you know, <laughs> getting back from Donald to do that call. And uh, I went out in Derby Day and had a practice run. And Justin Dash won the Melbourne Cup. And, uh, yeah, I got through it okay. I was really happy. But I... I couldn't believe the excitement around it and the build-up to it and the electricity in the air of 95,000 people there that day and Just a Dash dashed away. And I think I said, Just a Dash and Sydney take the cup or something because he's trained by Tommy Smith. So that was my first of 29. Then I had a break and then came back and took over when Bill retired. My first call for 3UZ, the new 3UZ, was 1988. All the way through to 2007, had the two years off, missed 2008, 2009. Came back for 2010 through to 2017. Um, along the way, there were difficult days when the rain came. Uh, I remember Vintage Crops Day was a, you were working for Channel 7, 93. The yeah. race changed forever, the internationalisation of the race. The great Dermot Weld. Dermot Weld and uh, Michael Canaan and uh, just ploughing through the mud and, and winning the race, sub-zero, the wet day. Um, and there were, there, were, there were sparkling days and Maccabi Diva, could she win a third and um, all the way for uh, the great horse Might and Power and Doremus ranging up and heads up and down, down to the line. The internationals taking over and winning, you know. Um, so the race the race has it all. It has it all. And you realise at the time, you know, you've got no idea really where the call's going. But the loneliest place is the broadcast box because you're on your own um, and you're in that, uh, that, that bubble or that cocoon, as I say, and... For the four or five minutes before the race, you're talking, it's non-stop. The last horse goes in and your heart is nearly jumping out of the cage of, of your body and you think, right, settle down. This is just another horse race. No, it's not. It's the Melbourne Cup. People expect you to get it right. You've been doing it for a while now. Go out there and have fun. And that was something that Bert Newton taught me, you know, from the showbiz axiom of go and have fun. People expect you to do it. You'll do it well. We're banking on you. And that's how it went. Uh, but you could never never get rid of the, the butterflies. I know for about 20 years in a row, there's a toilet in the little walkway behind the two broadcasting boxes at uh, Flemington. Greg Miles is in one, and I'm in not one toilet. He's in one box, and I'm in the other. <laughs> and we'd always meet about 20 minutes in yeah. the toilet. And you're going, good, mate, have a good call, have a good call. And that's that was that chat, uh, and you wouldn't see each other again for a couple of hours. So you went out and you did it. And once it's done, it was radio. Once it's done, it's done. It's one take. But um, you had to get out there and enjoy it. But it was fabulous. And I'm going to miss that. What was your overriding emotion after every cup? Was it relief that you got through it? Yeah, I remember nearly every night we'd go out. I'd meet uh, meet Jill. She, I think she's only been to about two cups when I've been calling, two or three. And um, we'd always go out with friends, non-racing friends, uh, and go out and they'd say, how'd you go? I said, oh, good, thanks. Oh, good on you. Another glass of wine, you know. And the letdown and relaxing was fantastic. And you couldn't just come home. You had to – you're still on a high. But I remember – 
first 10 or 15 years, the next day on the Wednesday, you'd be as flat as a biscuit, you know, because you'd built yourself and got up to that that pinnacle that you only get to once a year. Just hope you didn't have to do Kite and Cup Day. Many times I did, yeah. uh, but you, you had to get well, on with it. That would have been hard. It's a wonder I didn't send you there, actually. <laughs> uh, you would, but um, the, the coming down was uh, pretty hard. But you knew in your own mind whether you'd nailed it or not, and you wanted to get it right, and you, most of the time you didn't. You, you survived to the next year. So calling Melbourne Cups is difficult for all the reasons you've described. Calling any race is difficult. But calling a Cox Plate when you've got a runner in the race... How the hell did you do that five times? Well, I always took the view, Pete, that uh, A, I was paid to call races. I loved calling races. It was my profession. I've been doing it a long time. So when Fields of Omar came up in 2002 for the first of his uh, his Cox Plates, first of five straight, I I took the view that, yeah, uh, you know, I was the one who put my hand up and bought the horse and syndicated amongst friends. But I had to get the call right because if you look at the great broadcaster, they remember Bill Collins for two calls. Kingston Town can't win in the 81 or 82 uh, Cox Plate on the turn. And he was right. The horse was going backwards. Uh, his bone crusher, our Waverley Star call in 86. And for some reason, race callers seem to be more identified with that right call of the Cox Plate probably more so than a Melbourne Cup I agree for some that. reason. Yeah. And I always remembered Bill and his great calls, just, you know, what a broadcaster. And, you know, there's so much of Bill Collins and all of us, I think, somewhere along the way. And I just knew that I had to nail the call first and Fields of Omar, if you can believe it, came second. But I had to do that. I had to do that. And and, and you were being scrutinised too. You mentioned Fields of Omar six times and he only mentioned... Miss Finland five times. So you're conscious of all that too. But I had to get the call right. Uh, it was difficult, but you had to do it. You know, you had to get on stage and do it and, and entertain everyone, call every horse. And, you know, when he, when he won in 2003, they hit the line. I think I said, you've done it. Well, you know, he won $3 million in prize money. So that had a little bit of a bearing on the bank balance and Just sharing it with friends and family. I remember talking to you downstairs yes. after yeah. he yeah. won that day, and yeah. I'd known you for a long time. I don't think I've ever seen you quite as excited as that. <laughs> it was fabulous, but I think that the most important thing, and it's gone on with the syndicates that I, I manage and run now, is sharing with people, sharing the moment. And racing's measured by the moment, whether it be Better Loosen Up in 1990 or Fields of Omar at his Cox Plates or Maccabi Diva winning her third Melbourne Cup. It's all about the moment and what you see and what you, can, as the wordsmith, can describe and relay. Bill Collins said to me years ago, he said, Brian, the only tip I can give you, this is back in the later 80s as I took over, he retired Easter Saturday, 88. I took over Easter Monday, 88. And he said, I can say to you is always in your mind, think that you're calling to a blind person, yeah. a person who can't see. So you are the wordsmith. You are painting the picture. You are presenting the portrait. And I, I've always sort of been conscious of that. So you had to get the call right, but uh, it was great advice. You talked about better loosen up. How was that moment, your famous call of the Japan Cup when he won, and you were the English-speaking broadcaster. So it was not only for us here in Australia. That call was heard around the world. Um I remember flying over a couple of days before to Japan, to Tokyo, and I was sitting on the plane with uh, Howard Martin, the breeder, and Gabe Ferrara, a great friend who was a part owner, was on the plane, and all the Better Loosen Up team were going. David Hayes, in his first season of training, was already there, and 
the horse had settled in well. Uh, he'd worked a little upside down. He'd gone a bit too quick in a gallop at about the Thursday. They were a bit concerned, but they got him back on track for Sunday for the Japan Cup. Um, and if I can just set the scene for you, there was 167,000 racing fans, real fans, at, uh, at the Fushi Racecourse in Tokyo. Think of this. Um, the grandstand was five tiers high and ran about... 600 metres long. It was a massive grandstand. This is back in 1990. We're on the top tier, open area of the press, and there were, there were pressmen, you know, uh, journalists, and a caller from uh, Hong Kong, and I'd say about 15 Japanese callers and one English caller. And my position was back from the line. Um, I had my swivel stand, which was about sort of 18 inches high. We had to put four... Tokyo phone books under that to get the right elevation to get up to my eye level and a Coca-Cola crate. So it got to the right level for, for, for my viewing. And no air, air conditioning, no, no soundproof box. It was just open, open space. So the roar of the crowd as the field jumped away, the roar down the back when they turned for home, it was, a, it was like a wave of sound, that just a concophony of sound that just absolutely you know, inhaled you as the caller. So I just kept calling louder <laughs> because I had to try and make myself, I could hear myself a little bit back through the earphones, but knowing better loosen up, calling him through the spring from the Cox Plate to the McKinnon to the Fee and all the way through. I knew he'd get back and I could see him charging and they changed his cap to a green cap, but I, I knew where he was and I was watching the others and on the line I think I said better loosen up's one for Australia and yeah. he ran a photo finish. And then later I thought, you'd have been a mug if you'd have been wrong. Like, yeah, that would have been your last race call. You wouldn't have got home. Um, but it was in the Olympic Games for a broadcaster, and people say to me, what's your favourite call? Even even the Fields of Omar calls. I think, you know, on the tombstone, they'll probably say he called Better Loosen Up winning the Japan Cup in 1990. So it was a magical moment to bring that call home uh, to Australia. For an Australian horse, David Hayes, first season of training, great jockey Michael Clark and friends who raced the horse. What a great triumvirate of calls, all those Melbourne Cups, Foo winning the Cox Plate and the Japan Cup. But, of course, race callers have other moments at the other end of the scale. Now, if we go into all of the moments that have happened to race callers, <laughs> this program will still be going on Wednesday. So I'll get the abridged version of a couple of things from you. Yeah. Were you or were you not tackled to the ground once while you were calling a race? Yes, I was. Where yep. was that? In uh, Lay, L-A-E, Lay in New Guinea, uh, I'd been asked to come up and call their once-a-year meeting up in New Guinea, and my father had served there in the Second World War. I thought, this is a great, great opportunity. So we flew into Port Moresby on uh, Sunday morning. We flew across the Owen Stanley Ranges in this little plane, uh, arrived at Lay and uh, there Sunday night and ready for the Independence Day Cup, which is on the Monday. And the broadcast box we shared with the judge and the handicappers probably about six or seven metres wide, about uh, four metres deep, so a big area. There was a security guard, uh, a local security guard down the bottom of this stairway uh, to stop anyone from coming up. There were bookmakers betting. The horses were tethered by the river to keep them cool. It was a hot day. So um, there was a five-race card. Uh, they had the open-top barriers. And I remember talking to the starter later because I, I was on the PA and Kutz calling on the PA, and I'd say... Um, uh, Donegal star goes in, Jono's ready, Peter's wish is set, 
the line's good, they're set to go, and away they'd go. And I said to the starter later, we're having a couple of beers, and he said, I said, well done, mate. I said, you did a great job. You got them all away. He said, no, thank you. He said, as soon as you said they're all set, he said, I let them go. I let them go. <laughs> anyway, these horses had raced in about the second race, and they were running also in the cup, which was the last. So they ran over six furlongs earlier, and then they ran in the mile race, the cup, the last. There was a horse called the Snowburner. So he ran quite well as the, the, the practice warm-up <laughs> earlier in the day. So here he is in the cup, and um, uh, everything's going swimmingly. I'm really enjoying it. It's just a great experience. And uh, away they go in the in the lay Independence Day Cup. And they're going the Sydney way, the right-handed way, and they're going along the back, and Donegal Star, two lengths in front of Glass of Water, a length and a half further back, fills of moment, uh, going through a call. And I can feel, and, and from the vibration with the binoculars, I, I knew someone was coming up the stairs, the long ladder, and... Suddenly, as they came towards the home turn, I, could, I was conscious of someone being behind me and not take my eye off the call. So they come around the turn, and uh, on the outside is Glass of Water, followed by Donegal Star, and moving up. Here comes the snow burner, and behind me I hear, Go, Snowy! Go, Snowy! So running down with about 300 metres to go, Glass of Water, Donegal Star, and the snow burner joining. Go, Snowy! Go, Snowy! And it's this local guy who owns the horse, who's got a bottle of champagne in his hand, He'd been at the well for about four hours earlier. <laughs> so he's cheering Snowy, and he rides me as Snowy hits the front. The snowbirders hit the front with about a half furlong. He rides me to the ground screaming for Snowy. I finish up, and the audio tape, you hear me disappear, and he's on top of me. Big fella, coffee grower, Robert his name was. And I'm covered in champagne. He's tipped the champagne over me, ridden me to the ground. We're both on the floor, so I never saw the last 100 metres of the Lane Independence Day Cup. <laughs> so I climb up. Up the stem of the microphone stand, I think the snowburner's one from Donegal's wish and glass of water is the, and this bloke's on top of me said, "Sorry, Barry," and you can hear in the background, "The name's not Barry, it's Brian," and don't bloody do it again. <laughs> uh, now I did say the abridged uh, version, so g- give me the abridged version of this. Uh, uh, you've called thousands of races over the years, yeah. and one of the first things you say is, "So and so missed the start." Yeah. Not a good thing for a race caller to miss the start. <laughs> yes, that's true. Did it happen true. to you one day at yeah, Kilmore? Yeah, it happened to me. We were doing the Monday trots at Kilmore, and uh, a journalist at the time at the Herald, still still around, great guy, Ray Huxley, Hucker. Uh, we're having lunch in the um, in the dining room, the public dining room, and there was about four sets of stairs to get up to the box, to, to, the, to the broadcast box. Having lunch was about quarter past 12, and I must have missed time what time the race was. It was the Trotters race over 2,800 metres, so they're going to do three and a half laps of Kilmore. So I'm halfway through a T-bone steak with veggies and um, Hucker's about a half head in front of me with him. I think he's down to the peas. And there's a closed-circuit TV in the, in the dining room. And Hucker, dry bugger, he uh, looked up at the monitor and he looked at me and he said, uh, BM, uh, are you calling this race? And I said, yes, mate. Why? He said, they're at the tapes and about to go. <laughs> God. Dropped the knife and fork, and the meal went everywhere. I dashed out of the dining room, across the bedding ring at Kilmore. You know, got the Bronx cheers from the punters. Up the four flights of stairs. Well, you run upstairs. You know, you're going to be when you got to the very top. So, fly into the broadcast box. The studio were calling out for me. Uh, at this stage, they've they've stepped away from the top of the straight. They're down past the judge and going into the first lap down the back. So I did the old thing, the old trick. Uh, right, the PA's back on, testing one, two, three. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, down the back they go, and a wiki wiro two lengths to Cardigan Bay. And, and, you know, around to the judge, two laps to go. Yeah. 
<laughs> they thought I was dying of them. Like. <laughs> and that race, Pete, took an eternity. Yeah. It was like... It was slow motion. It took a half an hour, and they went over the line. I just fell to the ground. I was but, gone. But it does emphasise the importance of something that we spoke about before. It's very important from a technical point of view that your breathing is right, and that was exactly. one thing that you exactly. always did throughout your career. The, the lilt in your voice got... Um, uh, to the important stage, at the important stage of the race, and your Ooh. breathing was always controlled. And that was a technical thing that you mastered. And it's very difficult to do that yeah, when you're nervous about things. You, as you know well. exactly what we're talking about. We were talking um, off mic about you doing the Olympics in, in, in England, in London in 2012, and calling Usain Bolt. Like, I mean, I cannot imagine how you must have felt about A, having the the chance to do it, to be there in the presence of, without doubt, one of the greatest, if not the greatest man on the planet uh, over that, that, that distance. But you were there, you were doing it because you, you've got a fair idea what you're doing, you're good at your craft, um, and you know over the nine and a half seconds it took what level you'd start at, what level you'd finish at. And with the Melbourne Cup, you had to make sure that you didn't come out too high. You came at the right crescendo. And with the horses, the horses have to get into their rhythm of breathing to run the two miles. Very important for the race caller to do the same, to build and build and build. And the oxygen that the horses are taking in and breathing out as they start to build from the 1,200 to the 800 to the 600, turning for home. You don't want to be at your top 800 from home. You want to have something there because expect the unexpected in a race call and in a race, a horse race. A horse can duck out, can try and jump the rail. I've seen it all, you know, or collapse, sadly. Anything Mm -hmm. can happen. Or a Kiwi. You called the Kiwi Cup. I did. I'm sure you did. Yeah, yeah the Kiwi Cup. Uh, and I think a lot of people uh, don't actually appreciate what a great performance that was. 30 lengths from the leaders at Chiquita Lodge, still running 10th with about a furlong and a half to go, and run away to win the race comfortably. And you have to believe what your eyes tell you. Exactly. And the first thing that I thought when I saw this horse weaving its way through at about the 200-metre mark was the first thing... You don't do as a race caller, as you know. You don't doubt yourself. No, no. When that name comes into your head, you spit it out. And I thought, that can't be Kiwi. No, it's impossible. It's impossible. It was pretty close to impossible that day. I remember Bert Bryant calling the uh, the Cup of Vanderham, uh, 1976. Yep. And the rains came. They delayed the race by about 30 minutes. It was nearly going to be called off. The storm it was Armageddon, the storm that hit Flemington. And I was in the box with John Russell alongside Bert. Had it been any other race, they would have called they would it have, off. They would have. And I thought, How, how's he going to get through this? Because they were saturated. The colours were saturated by the time they got to the barrier. But Bert was going really well at the call. And there were, Vanderham was back for a stack because he was an absolute duck, a mudlark. And they backed him into 9-2 to two favourite because of the conditions of the track. Um, in today's age, world, they wouldn't have raced. They wouldn't have held them the race. And he had the grey and green colours, Vanderham, saturated. And Reckless was in the race too. And he had similar colours, grey and green. And they were spattered. And Bert, I remember his call uh, about... Two furlongs from home, or say 400 from home, and he said, and here comes Vanderham. And as you know, the unwritten law is if you're working with another caller, if you think they've got it wrong, you'll tap them on the shoulder to help them. I went within a centimetre of tapping him on the shoulder and saying, it's reckless. Mm. And it was Vanderham, and Bert was right. 
Well, that would have been the last Melbourne Cup. I'd have have finished Wednesday. (laughs) And and people don't appreciate how good that call was, and everyone had called that race, but especially in light of what had happened to Bert the previous year. Exactly. And that was the year of a horse called Medici. Yeah, yeah. And he just couldn't pick its colours up coming around the turn. It's happened to all of us. One of the saddest things at the races that I can ever recall, that 74 Cup, I was, um, was it 75? 75. Yeah, second of the Think Bigs. Yeah. And I got a late call, again, I got a late call to go to Randwick and call the races in Sydney. John Tapp was away on holidays. Ray Warren was due back from a rugby tour but was delayed in Singapore and there wasn't a caller. So I got the call on the Friday again before the Melbourne Cup. Could I come up on the Monday and for 2GB and call the local Randwick races? I remember, and Jill and I flew up on the Monday and uh, they lost my luggage, which included my binoculars and my swivel. And Rex Palmer was the manager at uh, 2GB at the time. And he said, oh, it's okay, son. We've got you some binoculars. They're beautiful glasses. They're 8 by 30s They're mirror doors. And they're tinted. I said, well, that's terrific. You know, <laughs> It's a good idea having tinted glasses <laughs> yes. on a sunny day at Randwick. And I, I, I still recall, and it threw me for a moment because they jumped out the, ba- the back of the barriers because mm. I wasn't used to the right-hand way. But all watching the Melbourne Cup through the dining rooms, and I remember Bert stumbling on trying to pick up Medici and the punters there booed. They booed, and and it was like a, an arrow through my heart, feeling for Bert. I thought, gee, that's unfair. But that's the ever-loving public, and it's what it is. Um, and I just remember, I thought, oh, gee, you know, they're ruthless. They're ruthless, and we all cop it. It's a tough game, and you've managed to survive all the way through until the end. We're nearly at the end of our program. We're going to take our final break, Brian, and then on this last day of Say It Now week, perhaps we can talk a little bit more about that when we come back after the break. And to watch all the Say It Now week ambassador videos, including uh, the one that Brian and I have done together, Peter Dacos, Robbie Kearns, Lee Broxham, some of the great names in sport here in Australia, visit tobinbrothers.com.au or head to facebook.com forward slash Tobin Brothers Funerals. We'll be back to wrap it up with Brian Martin on the other side of the break. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Say it now week ends tonight. On This is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, the last day of Say It Now week and don't forget to tell a loved one what they mean to you today. Brian, we've spoken a lot about your race calling career but you have another string to your bow at the moment where you get to talk about people and what they've achieved in their life. Yes I do Pete, uh, unbeknown to a lot of people I'm a funeral celebrant um, and it came by chance through a great friend out in Blackburn where we live uh, in James McLeod as a general manager of Tobin's and I spoke at one of the Blackburn Footy Club lunches about six or seven years ago and uh, we became good friends. He likes a bet. He uh, has shares in horses and a good human being, a great human being and he um, just said to me about five years ago, would you be interested in doing any celebrant work? And I said, oh, what What are you talking about? That, that's a silly thing. And anyway, I was going to Kyneton Races that day just to watch a horse run and thought about it on the way up and thought about it on the way back. I thought, this is so far removed from racing and calling and all that, and it's it's the real world. Yeah, I'd like to do this. And it had, so I've been doing it nearly five years now, and the fulfilment you get from it, helping families at, at such a difficult time, uh, is just is, is amazing. And, and everyone's got a story to tell. Everyone has a story to tell. And you talk about Say It Now, and we're into Say It Now week. Um Never forget to tell those around you and those that are special to you how much you do love them or how much 
you you admire for what they've done for you in, in, in your life. And you never know when people need help. And to be given this chance, actually, to be, to be a celebrant, to meet families, to meet people you didn't know existed on this planet is just fantastic. Um, people say, do you love doing that? Yes, I do. I do because of what you get at the end. If the family say to you, that's exactly what we wanted for Dad. I drive away from that particular service and think, yeah, that's it. We nailed it. We nailed it. It's one take, so your radio experience probably helps. But everyone's got a story, and it's just wonderful to have this opportunity. So you talk about Say It Now. I'd like to say it now to James McLeod. Thanks for having faith in me. Thanks for believing that I could do the job. And we all go through difficult times and cycles through our life, and James came along at the right time. Uh, and said, you know, do you want to have a crack at this? And, and I'm so, so grateful for that. But in life, um, your partner, your wife, whatever, is so important. And um, we have a fabulous partnership, Jill and I, and it's uh, it's in its 45th year now, and it's as strong as it's ever been. Um, she stood by me. You know, there are times when you'd be difficult, I'm sure, to live with because of the pressure of your job and different things that you're doing. Have you made the right career move and things like that? But we shared that all the way. We shared that with the children, Tim and, and uh, Beck, as they got older, and now with their wives and husbands and, and, and grandkids. So the family is so important. So I say it now. I love them all, love them so dearly, and it's probably the, the best time of my life is now. Beautifully spoken, Brian. And uh, as we come to the end of this, I'll say what I've said to you privately many times. I've said it publicly many times. I wouldn't be sitting in this studio if it wasn't for your influence over the years. And uh, the guidance that you gave me as a, a young kid who was still at school and trying to make his way in broadcasting, uh, what you did for me was invaluable. And I say thank you. Pete, you'll never know how proud uh, myself, but particularly my family, are of what you've achieved. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Brian Martin joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And you can catch us at the same time next week when we celebrate the life of another great Australian in sport on This Is Your Sporting Life. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.